Abigail Aquino has been a friend of mine since high school. She is the archetype of the person that caused me to create this podcast because her life has been punctuated by adventures both here and abroad, which stands in stark contrast to my own relatively boring life. She explored the fields of marketing, physical therapy, elderly care, all while navigating the challenges of being a Filipina abroad. Abigail currently works in marketing for the food and beverage sector and has a lot to say about side hustles, finding your passion, and dating in Cebu. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Abby, welcome to my podcast. Hi, Rami. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. For the benefit of the listeners, do you mind introducing yourself? Hi, my name is Abigail Aquino. I have spent my 20s building my passive income, having several odd jobs, kind of a late bloomer. And now I currently work in the food and beverage industry whilst also maintaining my passive income. Okay. So what is this passive income? Where does it come from? Um, So basically it comes from um, Google ads. So advertising. So advertising. So my background is really in advertising. So I've spent, that's really my career. It's, it is advertising. I graduated from the university of San Carlos in advertising arts. And I, before I got into, um, studying in basically San Carlos, I kind of dipped my toes in advertising when my dad showed me this world of how you can earn money through ads on YouTube. And he said, um, why don't you try this out? See how you like it so you can actually earn income while studying. So um, what I basically do is that I build websites, create content for um, my websites, and I earn money whenever people view my ads, click my ads. So it's basically how YouTubers earn money when you view your, their ads, but I do that on websites. Like with websites, because you know, I think we're all really familiar with the TikTok, YouTube uh, ad revenue, you know, it, it's about watch minutes and stuff. But how do you do it for websites or like static content? Because uh, I think I I, I, I kind of get how it can work for uh, YouTube now because they serve you ads, right? But how do you how do they pay you for you know having these websites? So first you have to register. You have to register your website through Google Ads. You have to apply, and then you have. Um, they you have to go like i said you have to go through like an approval process so they base it on your traffic how much content that you're creating how long your website has been live and if your content is original so i create evergreen content so let's say when i say evergreen these are um um topics that age well Mm -hmm. so they don't necessarily have to change so, for example, like um, one of my websites are based on plants. I can create content um, that is, let's say, for example, best 30 house plants that, that are hard to kill. Kind of <laughs> that are hard to kill. Are you trying to solve a, a problem that you experience in your own life? <laughs> well, actually, I've come to become like a really a kind of like a crazy plant lady, to be honest. Like um, one of my businesses uh, during COVID was selling plants. So <laughs> that was one of the inspirations behind that. So like I said, like um, it's evergreen content. No pun intended with the green. Uh, it's um, it's content that doesn't have that ages well and it's reliable. But I guess, like, uh, I wonder, because you say it's a passive income stream, but it seems that there's some work that goes into it where you generate articles, you generate content. Um, what is the, uh, what, what's the amount of time that you spend in a given week on this, uh, can I call it a side hustle? Well, 
you can call it a side hustle now. Uh, but when I was studying, when I was in university, it was kind of like a, also a full-time job. Um, for, me to su- for me to succeed, it's hard to get into. It's hard to succeed. Sorry. Excuse me. So, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, she's. Uh, we're, we're drinking gin and tonics now, so for the benefit of the listeners. Sorry. No problem. <laughs> so, well, like I said, um, I started this out kind of like a full-time job. You cannot succeed. This... What I'm trying to say, say is that if you try to dip your toes into what I'm doing, you need to invest yourself in it. I spent, let's say, 12 hours, 15 hours a day when I was studying like at, um, at night. This helped me survive COVID, like those COVID years where everyone was losing their jobs. I was generating income with that um, because you have to show, like I said, there's an approval process, so you have to show Google that... Um, you are dedicated to your website. This is we're not. Uh, there is traffic coming in. There are people interested. There you have a following. So I d- it was, a, it is a side hustle now. But previously I was spending like I said like twelve hours, fifteen hours a day. And because I was earning more, I was earning in dollar. I'd wake up at four or five a.m. just generating content for the U.S. market because they have the highest. Um, what we say, um, pay per click. Okay. So whenever they would click an ad or see an ad, I would earn, let's say, a dollar or two dollars every time that was actually seen. But compared to the Philippines where we earn literally in centavos, that wouldn't, it wasn't generating that much. So I was really, um, really focused on the um, American market just because of the dollars. I guess we know how you got started. We know how much time you invest. What is what is one of these articles that generates you that money look like? Like what what's the is it how how long is it? How much time does it take to generate one article? And I guess on top of that, how many articles do you need to generate in a given week, for example, to be one of those websites that qualifies for Google AdSense? Um, there is no specific number or um, how do you say? There are no exact requirements for you to get approved by Google AdSense. It's really a game of luck. They want to see how. Because everyone, honestly, everybody wants to get into, um, everybody wants to be their own boss. Everybody wants to earn money online. Who doesn't, right? And everybody would like to be monetized, to have their website monetized. Um, There's no, like I said, there's no specific um, qualifications for Google to approve you. You just have to be lucky and you really just have to invest yourself into it. Um, So your other question was... Like how long, how much content do you create? Ah, before I actually was creating, when I say before, this was 2020, from 2017 to 2020, last year, 2021, I was creating 20 articles a day. 20? Yeah. How many words in each article? Um, that would vary. Uh, I would just try to put as much ads as I could in one article. Uh, but now I don't create my own articles anymore. I just pay people off Fiverr. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it's fine. But then it's interesting because like that raises a few questions. So what is the process by which you might? So now, I mean, I think there's like a, an abundance of resources to be able to figure out how people make YouTube videos or TikTok, famous TikToks. But, you know, this is something that's not in the public eye as much. So what does your creative process look like so that you're able to generate that much content? You have to really follow trends. Just like TikTok, websites, Facebook, and anything that is relevant on the internet, it's really based on trends. You have to dedicate yourself in figuring out what is being talked about right now. How do you stay relevant to that topic? And is it worth people's time 
and kind of just like what makes you what makes your article kind of stand out compared to everyone else. So if you didn't know, um, news sites or let's say BuzzFeed or any others, they prepare for people's or celebrities' deaths. If you didn't know about that, so for example, like when Cle- Queen Elizabeth died, there is a process for there are articles already saved up or articles pre-written coming up to her death. So it's like, uh, let's say, Queen Elizabeth's best 30 funny moments or Queen Elizabeth's most iconic moments and stuff uh, and such. So they, you have to find a way to stay relevant. Mm. It's really following trends and so on. No, but then like, okay, like, maybe we can pick like a particular topic. Like, is there something, a trend that you generally would follow that you found that, oh, you know, this niche of culture is something I can follow? Like, is it fashion or is it, uh, I don't know, what, some kind of fandom or something? Like, what is what is a trend that you personally followed? For a while, I was following Philippine politics. That's how I got me, that's how I got started, Philippine politics. I won't say who I was following but um you can just it's fine no it's okay i'd just rather not so i was just right i was when i first started like i said i was writing about philippine politics but it wasn't evergreen so i realized how much work i was putting in and that was like the 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 thing i really didn't want to do so with philippine politics people were always interested about let's say ex-senator did this or ex-president did that or said this and that so it would be um a hot topic for that day and after a few days it would kind of die out um, so I realized I was spending all this effort writing new and original content that would die out eventually after a few days or so, and I would add more work in. So I, I shifted to evergreen content because I believed in um, work smarter, not harder, <laughs> because I wanted to work as least as a, you know least amount as possible while generating income. So were you a troll? What, what, what were you no, I wasn't a troll. Okay, I wasn't a troll. I was just, <laughs> I was um, basing everything on facts. I wasn't attacking anyone. Just FYI, I was not a troll. Okay, but she's she's being she's looking at me. <laughs> I'm like, not a troll. She's looking at me with daggers, and she's like, "Don't pursue this line of questioning." No. <laughs> but I, I guess I guess so. Let's just leave that to the side for a bit because um, it's a, it feels like a minefield. Uh, you 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 wound up in advertising. But because I know you and I know the journey that you've been on, like, can you outline the process by which you eventually wound up in this advertising path? Because I don't think it was, uh, you know, like you're very, you're terribly well accomplished for your age now, but it wasn't always like that. You were sort of trying different things. Can you please outline that, that process of finding what it was that you were actually good at? So like I mentioned before, I was kind of like a late bloomer. Um, I started out, when I first, when I graduated high school here in Cebu, my dad wanted me to pursue advertising from the very beginning, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to see how smart I was. I wanted to try everything. I just basically wanted to try everything. So right after high school, I moved to Australia. I, I, my first course, it was like a certificate program, though. It was not like a proper degree. It was um, um, age care. Like, like elderly care? Elderly care. So I was taking care of old people. I was working in a nursing home. Nice. So I was. It was like the the pre nursing co- course because like you know after you graduate high school, everyone wants you to get in. You everyone you know every Filipino parent wants you to become a nurse, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I didn't do that. My parents never pushed me, but I just kind of wanted to. 
I was the one who brought myself to that path. <laughs> and then I um, I came, um, I realized like it's not really for me. And then right after I came back to the Philippines, went back to Australia, applied for an actual student visa for like, um, yeah, so I applied for a student visa again uh, for software development. Mm-hmm. And that lasted about two and a half years. That's a quite a while, yeah. Yeah, it was it was an experience, but honestly, one of the best years of my life, um, because I the reason I got into software was because in high school, do you know the website Tumblr? Tumblr, yes. So I was kind of Tumblr fan. You mean the porn website? <laughs> Is it now a porn website? <laughs> <laughs> Back in my day, <laughs> it was all emo poetry and yeah, it was all emo poetry, typography, people just posting pictures of their like quotes from books. Yeah, it was it was super toxic because it had that feature, the Tumblarity. Was yeah, so, it was. So people were just like trying to one up each other, try to get more Tumblarity, and then it would like you needed to like, and everyone would just like mindlessly what's it quote? Yes. Like post just just for that just for that added boost to their. It was it was an ego boost, honestly. Isn't social all social media platforms that are are an ego boost? No. Yeah, but that was like that was the only one where it was like the dumbest implementation. Like it's just a running high score, and so you see people with like, and then I think they eventually removed it, and then when they removed it for some reason, it descended into porn. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's good to know. I didn't know that, but it was yeah. like so I think at some point it was like ninety percent of Tumblr was just porn. Well, why don't you just go to a normal website? I I guess it was more niche. I don't know. Maybe man. it was just because you know it was it was it was school friendly. If that <laughs> was okay. <laughs> if I if I if I if I answer more concretely, then I might betray how much I know about this, and so um, I will stop talking about it now. So, but you mentioned that you tried software development. So, wh- what what wh- and you you said Tumblr. Why did Tumblr equal software development okay. instead of porn? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was just because, like, because I was, like I said, quote unquote, Tumblr famous for a while, because I was making like all these. Um, I was famous for typography, so I was into the arts. I was there making those fancy, nice little coats, and so I had a following. And because I had a following, I had to constantly improve my website. Mm-hmm. So I was built. I was studying HTML, CSS, and also I was because um, I was a bit of a geek growing up. No. I, oh no! Yeah. <laughs> I was a big a bit of a geek growing up because you know I had two brothers, so all I did was play video games. So I was like, okay, I like HTML. I mean, like I like coding. I like video games. What's the most logical thing to do? Let's get into software. Mm. So I I did that for a while. Um, so I uh, forgot to mention that I I took software in Adelaide, Australia, which is a very very small town, uh, city by the way. It's I think it's I think it's like the fifth or sixth largest city in Australia. Don't quote me on this. I'm not sure. Uh, so yeah, so I was there in about uh, in 2013, I believe. And the reason I left was because there was not really a lot of women in tech yet. And also being a minority, um, you do experience a lot of um, interesting racism. <laughs> like So actually, this is one of those things that I feel particularly strongly about because racism so I'll, i'm gonna go off on a tangent and i promise i'll bring you back it, 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 because i'm terribly articulate and i'm well-spoken people sort of look at me and go rami you know you should uh, work abroad because you have this you're terribly disagreeable which put which puts you at about normal for a foreigner as opposed to you living here in the philippines like so they say that i should go abroad and work and then i think to myself you know i'm muslim i'm filipino i'm arabic 
So I'm just like, you know, I'm I'm basically Fox News's worst nightmare, you know what I mean? <laughs> so and I'm thinking to myself like if I'm going to go to a different country and try to uh make it in that place, I, I I'm going to be the victim of terrible terrible racism. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this is one of those things that I have a hard time articulating in Filipinos generally because they see that uh, going abroad is just this ticket to opportunity and there's no one. Else. But then in my particular context with my name, I think I'd be hard pressed to do that in a Western country. So, yes. Uh, but let's not detract from your experience, oh, okay. though. But can you please outline um, what it is specifically you experienced as a Filipino in this tiny town called Adelaide? It's not a town, it's a city. It's a city. It's, it's a, a city. tiny place. Tiny place. And also, yeah. So I just want to put it out there. Um, I love Australia. I still consider it my second home. I had like the best years of my life there. Uh, it's just like a few moments really of just racism. It just happens. Because um, if you ever go to Melbourne or Sydney, there's a lot of Asians there. But like as a Adelaide was a very small city where it didn't really exactly have that many... Uh, it didn't have a lot of diversity yet. <coughs> now it's completely changed. Uh, so like, you know, I would just be walking down the street... And then I was dating um, an Australian then. Um, and I remember I was walking down the street in the si- heart of the city, great place. It was near my uni as well. Uh, a guy just walks out, uh, w- drives down with on a ute, basically a pickup truck, and just yells out like, hey, how much you buy her for? And, you know, my the guy I was dating then, uh, he was furious. But for me, it's uh, as the, per- the, uh, the person who actually received the hate, I was just like, ah. Uh, it happens. <laughs> it happens. You know, I'm. I can't really do anything about that. Mm-hmm. I can't. And the, the fact that he got mad for me, I I had to kind of calm him down. Th- just tell him like, if you if you get mad, they're kind of winning because that was their intention to piss you off or piss me off. Mm-hmm. Uh, another instance was when I was going to the bathroom because um, I worked in the Adelaide Central Market, which is kind of like a tourist site. They also have Chinatown there. Um, I was going to the toilet and then a guy just comes up to me and tells me like, hey, go back to your country. Stop stealing our jobs. And I'm like, dude, I'm 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 here to study. <laughs> I'm not trying to steal anyone's job. I work in a bakery. <laughs> <laughs> I just bake bread. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on, on the whole, though, what was some of the things that were like, those are some very key, clear uh, examples of how life in Australia might not have been so rosy. What was it like as a Filipino and what was it? Like, what are the positive experiences that you had? Because I, I, I'm pretty sure those far outnumber the instances of racism that you might have experienced. So, for the positive experiences I've had there, it really... Because I lived in Adelaide, like I said, it's it's not all bad, okay? It was just that one issue as well. And also being a woman in tech where there was it was a very male-dominant field, it was harder to get a job. Is it really? It was harder. So, now they implemented a law where you have to... Uh, uh, balance out the ratio as much as possible, mm-hmm. especially in tech, because it was very male dominated. So now they requ- some companies require a fifty fifty uh, ratio on women and men. Mm-hmm. So also it's very interesting too because like I meet a lot of people in uh, men in tech because, and I hear them speak every time, mm-hmm. uh, but not my m- not my friends, but like other people I've met in tech. Uh, they always say like, ah, oh, you know, we shouldn't. Uh, I hate working with women. Um, you shouldn't. We shouldn't have hired her just because she's a woman. I don't feel. I don't. I feel like 
they always tell me like they, we shouldn't be forced to hire someone just because of their gender it's not our fault if they're incompetent in such this and that and we're, I'm like this is why it's hard to, for women to get into tech this is why women don't want to be in tech it's completely different now because I was in San Francisco two years ago and like I've met so many great women in that industry but um, 10 or 12 years ago um, it's not the same yep yeah, no, but then I guess, mm, you know, it, it's one of those things that's really hard to slice because, like, uh, te- tech, I guess, is probably terribly consolidated because it's it's viewed largely as a male pursuit. But, like, if I can speak from my own experience, uh, one thing that I'm particularly observant of, let's say, is that is that actually in the legal field, which is the field that I'm the most familiar with, there are actually more women. It's it's mm-hmm. a it's a strange thing. So you have all these 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 large law firms in Metro Manila, where all of the partners are men, and uh, many of the senior associates are, or the junior associates are women. So and of course that's like <laughs> that that sounds like a cliche where it's like oh of course the men would only hire women. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no yeah. no, but then actually um, in the the distribution in like law schools and stuff, it's skewed towards women. And I think weirdly women are more well suited for the legal profession because I think one of the misnomers or the misconceptions that people have is that it's an aggressive profession, um, or the misconceptions rather, not misnomers. It's one of those things where you actually have to persuade and a feminine touch is much better for that, um, for that particular, action as opposed to a more masculine approach where you're trying to dictate to the person in front of you so women definitely have the edge in litigation i would say because it's easier for them to um you know adopt the posture which women generally do which is to be more uh, agreeable more pleasing and that's something that men have a hard time doing so at least in the legal field it's it's a very welcome development where there are many capable women who are um, not just in like reviewing contracts but actually litigating um, and it's one of those things that um, I think people don't often think of when they see the legal profession but it's just interesting that you know tech tech is one of those things where it's it shouldn't be uh, sexist because I think I think if you can make good code good code, is good code regardless of who makes it. Yes. So why, but why do you think it is that women, as opposed to, like, say, for example, legal industry, it, there's a definite uptick in the number of women. But why is it that in tech that women have a uphill battle? I didn't understand as well before until I, you know, I talked to what do you say, tech bros, a few tech bros, and uh, whenever they complain about women, it's apparently it's because like um, when men code, they just they have they see a straight line. And they just have to code. Women apparently, they see all the s- the liter- little details around. Mm-hmm. So okay, sorry to be- kind of phrase it better. When there's a project that you have to code, men just want to code to finish the project. Women see all the finer details around it, so which kind of delays the project once in a while. So we like see the finer details, the little details, admin stuff, cost. Everything else that a male generally, and I'm not sure, generally would like to just get the job done. Mm-hmm. They get they want to get from point A to point B, while women want to see what are the little things around point A between point A and point B. Mm. So it's like a difference in paradigm. Yes, and it's it's it, I guess because it's harder for men who see point A to point B quickest way forward uh, to 
visualize the way a woman might think about a problem. They just b- don't bother hiring women. Is that is that a correct appraisal? I'm sorry. So the reason why it's hard for women to get into tech is because men who think about point A to point B don't necessarily want to interface with different viewpoints that are more holistic. Or is that is that is that is that how you would put it? Because I'm just trying to synthesize. Um, it could be it could be a factor, but it's also just because like um, you know, when you want, how do you say it's like guys like hanging out with guys you don't have to fig- think about like women are also very um tribal uh, not necessarily we get offended a little bit easily <laughs> so like you know guys okay i think a better way to put this was um so a few days ago rami and i had a few beers mm-hmm. <laughs> and i remember I'll, i thought it was like a very interesting way of how men communicate <laughs> Because I told Rami that day, it's like, wow, I really look like shit today. And then Rami said, yeah, because your hair is up. And I was just like, wow, if I said that to a woman, she'd be like, oh, no, Abby, no, you look great. What are you talking about? But no, like he went straight to the point. He's just like, no, this is the problem. Like, here is the problem that is in front of you. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) there's like different ways of handling different situations. No, but it, uh, another another thing that happened that night was so funny. Was Nico, uh, our friend Nico, who had uh, like a who passed up a really good job opportunity and was cooking, uh, was cooking pizzas in that small bar that we were drinking in. The job opportunity he had was amazing. It's like a hundred thousand pesos, and he gets paid a hundred thousand pesos per month for the full year, and he, and he only has to work six of those months, which which was like a sweet deal in some in some incredibly posh and wonderful resort. And then I, of course, tell him like, "Oh man, wow! You should have. You're such a retard. You didn't. You didn't take. <laughs> you didn't take that job offer. And now look, you. You're making pizzas on a Monday night in some random bar without even. I didn't even hesitate. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, <Robert. laughs> and it was so funny because like he just kept laughing. It was just like Nico. You, the joke here is your life. <laughs> No, but it, it, it's something that I, I think it's really hard to... Because generally, women are very empathic. They're very sensitive to each other's emotions. And so they won't go out of their way and say horrible shit to each other. As opposed to guys who are like, mm, what, maybe what what is he? Do you think he has daddy issues? Let, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So in a way, it, I, it was, I was more appreciative because it's like, ah, okay, now I don't have to figure out what the problem was with my face. It was just my hair was up. Mm. So, you know, it was straight to the point. That was what I needed to hear, but not a lot of... People would tell me that. Mm. So if they would just be like, oh, no, it's just like, it's, you look great no matter what you do. I'm like, no, dude, tell me what I'm, what's wrong with me. <laughs> I don't want to figure it out. <laughs> well, also, you'd been binge drinking over the weekend, so there was that. <laughs> 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 um, no, but anyway. <laughs> no, another example of this communication uh, styles that men employ. Um, but I guess... Now we're talking about very serious issues, no? Um, when it comes to like employment discrimination and um, the 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 can I call it the indecision that you had with like the path that you eventually wanted to go down? I'm I'm asking now. I'm trying to frame my question because I want to ask: Did these things cause you anxiety or any kind of mental um, issues? Yes, but I think um, it always happens in your 20s. Like, I used to be really jealous of people who knew what they kind of wanted to do in their life. They never shifted course. So, 
when I first graduated from high school, I got into elderly care, aged care, and then I got into software in Australia. And then I came back to the Philippines um, because my mom wanted me to for another funny story, but that's for another day. Um, and then I got into physical therapy and super doctors Whoa. for two and a half years. <laughs> and then I finally said like, okay, I'm going to do the course that my parents really believed that was fit for me, was, uh, which is advertising. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't want to take it was because like I didn't know like what doors it could open for me because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my from the beginning of when I was 18 and let's say 26 or so I wanted to just get into whatever path earned me the most money and I realized it's just not worth it honestly mm. <laughs> the PT just cost me depression <coughs> and anxiety not because like I wasn't smart enough it was just because like you sacrifice a lot of your life for other people. For other people and just for studying. And that was really not my personality. Mm-hmm. In software, it caused me a lot of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Like I needed this. F- I wanted to have this feeling of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, like, But the people, like my classmates in um, software, oh my God, those guys are one of the nicest people I've ever met. I still, they're like my brothers. Um, so I think throughout your 20s, Everyone goes through this stage of anxiety and insecurity. But it took me a while to kind of figure this out. So I went through so many different types of fields Mm -hmm. to finally understand that advertising is really my path. But not, and then I kind of dipped, kind of tried out um, the beverage industry, which was wine and Mm -hmm. now beer. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not a field I expected myself to be in. But I want to see like what it is I excel in, what gives me joy, what gives me, um, you know, what am I good at? So what is it about the food and beverage industry that interested you in the first place? Well, I drank a lot. <laughs> well, well, I've always been very passionate about... When I was living in Australia, I did... a. I worked in a bakery. That was one of my first jobs. I worked in my aunt's bakery because my grandma's in Australia. Mm. And I thought it was pretty cool. I thought I could survive. And then um, I was I shifted, I shifted from a bakery to sushi. Mm-hmm. I was working in a sushi train. You know those little trains? Like, you know those restaurants that have like those conveyor belts? So we call those sushi trains. And then I worked in a deli. So I was like, okay, I have some experience in food and beverage. And um, I was given this great opportunity to um, enter into the world of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried it out and I loved it. I honestly really loved it. Yeah, so I just loved it. And I, w- I saw my potential there. Mm. Selling a physical product, maybe. Yeah, selling. A f- no, just not f- selling the physical product. It was actually the social aspect. Well, maybe can you expand a little bit on like what 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 is it like to be dealing in wine or beer? Um, so with the world of wine, it's a very sophisticated, um, blue blooded, blue blooded. Uh, very, it's in, yeah. It was very. It's a. It was a very fr- uh, first sight. It's very sophisticated, but the more I kind of like delved into it, I realized like it's such a beautiful beverage. Um, but a lot of people were intimidated by it, so my job was to. Um, initially it was really just to like manage the store um and then i started realizing like okay this is really all about um 
in a way social it's very social because you get to meet so many so many different types of people so many different like you know just different characters and see like okay this is one world i didn't know about mm. and because wine is appealing to so many different types of groups you meet different types of personalities constantly mm. so it became it made me realize how social i was because i had an i had really severe anxiety mm. um i realized that i am introverted but once i'm out there i am I wouldn't say I, I am like a social butterfly, but like I am in a zone. Mm-hmm. So my insecurity of always being shy and introverted was completely expelled once I finally realized, okay, I'm good at talking to people. I'm good at um, educating people about wine. And that was one of the other things that I really liked about the wine industry was that because in Cebu, it was very untouched mm. that I had people come up to me and tell me like, hey, Abby, like I, I remember your class or your seminar that you did on wine, like it made me really want to explore this whole new world. Like I, and uh, there'd be people who tell alcoholism, you know, alcoholism, you know, <laughs> 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 you know, put the light in alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, it, it, it made me, kinda, it just made me realize like, I thought I was good in advertising, but I'm also good in beverage. Mm. So I re- like I said, I really just want to, I spent my twenties just, trying to figure out what I was good at mm-hmm. and then I became less insecure I became less anxious because I became more confident with myself because uh, I don't know it just it was that's how I the reason I stayed in the beverage industry was because I was I believe I'm good at it mm. but it's one of those things where you know it's terribly impressive that you were able to sort of go on this journey right um so like just just this is just me hitting back with my own experience. When I was young, um, I really had this thing about I was deathly afraid of failure, because it was something that my my mother had inculcated in me. Not not so much that you know she made me scared of life, scared of living it, and she just said that you know you you try your best, and if you can if you can avoid failing, then do your best to avoid that. So what I did was I went to a really difficult school and I took a four year course in business because that was something my mother wanted me to do, and then I went and. I wanted to do something else difficult, right? Because my definition of success was doing difficult things. And so what I would wound up doing was I went to law school and only recently have I been able to articulate for myself why it is I did that. It's because it was difficult. And I think part of that was that I wanted to um, sort of live up to my own expectations of myself. And I would not permit myself the opportunity to experiment or tr- to try new things because I had this image in my mind of who I wanted to be eventually and that was a lawyer. And, you know, you, I had those experiences where I came close to not making it, right? Anyone who's in law school will be very familiar with the feeling of the end of the semester where you think to yourself, oh my God, is this is this the end? <laughs> I, I had a really interesting story. It was so funny. A friend of mine, what happened was he had taken a class in one semester and he his professor didn't submit the grade. And then he took he, he took one full semester again and he failed something. Right? And then he, he enrolled for the semester after that, uh, which was which put him in his third year already. And that's that the, the the professor from a full year ago submitted the grade and failed him. And in the law school where I came from, 
you're not allowed to have two consecutive semesters where you fail subjects. So he retroactively oh, no. failed. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and he was already, he was, he was oh, attending no. class with us for two weeks. And I was thinking to myself, wow, man, that's such an asshole move. Can you imagine you're late to submit a grade by a full year and then you fail the guy? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, but, then, but then it was, it was, it was intense. Um, so, you know, kudos to you for like taking this this path which which took you on such an interesting adventure honestly it was hard it was like this i, I even now i have this this feeling of uncertainty because i was so i think my my problem was is that i felt like in my 20s i always had to prove something and i was so afraid i was so scared of rejection mm-hmm. um then i kind of realized because i'm always scared of rejection i'm rejecting myself from opportunities mm-hmm. so i wouldn't do things i'd be like oh i don't want to get a nine to five job because like I don't want to be one of those people. But honestly, taking that nine to five, or rather, it was nine to six job, um, it was the best thing of the best one of the best decisions I've ever had in my life. Because I've learned about you know how to work with people, how to um, just communicate better. Like not everything's about you, kind of thing. Uh, it, yeah. So it just it just taught me a lot of humility. Um, but like you know, just kind of going back to what you said. Um, it was because I was I wasn't you had a path of what you wanted to be. I had a path of what I what I didn't know what I wanted to be. Until now I don't really know what I want to do. Um I have this it was just me trying to figure out am I happy with myself? Can I imagine myself doing this? So that's why I tried like all these different things to see if like is this a something I wanna pursue? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess so, you know, throughout your life, you've confronted different challenges. And I assume um, because, you know, the, of the different things that you put yourself towards, the different things that you tried to take up uh, as a discipline from like the medical field to software development to eventually advertising, w- which you would land on. I can imagine there was a lot of stress, that there was a lot of um, difficulty how did you how did you cope with the times when you might have been really far away from home when you were in Australia, and you know I, I assume that there were difficult times where you sort of doubted yourself and I'm just wondering if there were any techniques that you might have used uh, to help get you through those difficult times. Yeah, it's called drinking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Never. I'm joking. Um, travel really really helped me a lot. It I think that's some um, one thing that really molded me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very fortunate that my parents, I was a bad student, honestly, because I was always absent from class. My parents were just kind of like, um, any opportunity they could get, um, they would, we'd go on a holiday. I got my first passport when I was one. Um, so it was really just travel and the, the thought that I'm a, the thought that like it'll be okay if I give myself like this short term goal mm-hmm. in a way something to look forward to. So I had this um, very I don't know if you say it's a bad habit, but I was like really good at skipping, uh, like planning my absences. Mm-hmm. So I was like I would um, calculate it like as it was like um, a math equation. Like if I do X amount of absences, I can go to Japan, do my classes there like maybe online or ask someone to like send me like ask a group mate to send me the assignments but I was really good at it <laughs> while I'm also working in with my passive income while studying while traveling at the same time so that really helped me with my stress uh, okay I mean I could literally I mean it was more of like am I literally running away from my problem 
But then, what what are some places that you so travel was one of the ways that you decompress. What was some what were what were some places that you particularly enjoyed? What are some of your favorite places to go? Myanmar. Really? Myanmar. Isn't that place like doesn't have like a military junta in charge now? No, it now? does. <laughs> so you can still go, can you? Uh, not know. now, but um, I was really fortunate. So I'm a very how do I say? I'm a very I'm a risk taker. <laughs> so I was there in 2020, the, the the year of COVID. Nice. And I knew that all the borders were closing, and I went to Manila for a festival that got canceled. And because I was already like there. I thought to myself, hmm, I'm already here. What country can I go to that where the borders aren't closed yet? So I booked my <laughs> I booked a flight <laughs> to Myanmar for like uh ten days, I believe. And it was like the best experience of my life. Because you're probably the only tourist there. Oh, there were a few tourists. There were still a few tourists. And I honestly when I got back to the Philippines, it was like the day before the Philippine borders got were, were, were closed mm-hmm. I remember I was in Manila that the day before and then people were just look at, looking at me like why is this girl wearing a mask like this was March of 2020 like why is this girl wearing a mask there's no COVID here it's non-existent and then the next day it was shut all the borders were shut and I was just lucky to arrive in the Philippines gosh but I, I guess one of those things that you know it's it's one of those things that's super contentious because I have like lots of you can imagine that my friend group there are many lawyers so they're unadventurous souls who don't like to do things. Why is it the travel sort of draws you in? Why is it that it sucks you in as opposed to other things? So I have friends, for example, they like to go to the shooting range on the weekends. They like to drink with friends on Fridays. I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying like travel is one of those things that actually really if you want to do it right you want to do it well you have to invest a little bit of mental energy and it requires you to plan out well in advance when you actually want to go so why is it that travel is something that you find an affinity with because the uncertainty excites me okay it's because like um you can go to a country thinking you know everything about it and then and then you realize when you get there you don't mm-hmm so I enjoy the planning. I enjoy, I have this thing where on my birthday, I try to travel alone as my, it's a tradition that I do. Because I used to the, I used to be those girls who were always excited about their birthday and I wanted to do something big. Uh, but I realized like um, people don't have exactly have the same time or energy or they don't just care. They don't care. So I did this thing uh, where I just started every, on my birthday, I travel by myself and I go somewhere by myself because it becomes more personal. It's my journey with myself. Mm. so it's like I think the problem before was I was always waiting for people to say yes to me mm-hmm. instead of like just saying yes to myself and I think that's a, a problem that I, I noticed like a lot of people are afraid of being by themselves they can't eat out by themselves they have to go to the bank with somebody they have to go to the groceries with somebody I'm like so I was I remember I woke up a few years ago, I forgot. It was like I think it was my twenty sixth birthday. Oh no, yeah, it was my twenty sixth birthday, and I told myself like, I want to become my own best friend. Mm. Instead of waiting for people to say yes to me, I'm, I am, you know, I'm limiting my experiences because I'm wait, I'm depending on someone to say yes and go with me, instead of just saying yes to myself. So you you go on these journeys and you sort of discover things about yourself, and. You know, you you say that it's important to you that you be alone when you do these things because you want to be your own best friend. What I guess now that you are your own best friend or you're working towards it very thoroughly, what are those things that you've learned 
about yourself when you travel alone? You're capable more than you know. You're more capable than more than you know. Um, you learn about the types of people you want to hang out with. You become less of a people pleaser. Mm. Because um, I was a big people pleaser in my 20s. Like I, I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to be the girl that everyone expected me to be. And But the thing is, when I started traveling more, you just kind of realize like everyone's going through their own journey. Mm-hmm. It become it helps you become more empathic because mm. you meet all these different characters and souls. Um, you meet you hear about other people's stories, and then you re- you realize like nothing, not everything's really about you. It's really about just how you kind of just realize the world needs a little bit more kindness. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where it was like, uh, so I'll give you, a, I'll give you an interesting story. It was so funny. Um, I went to Germany. I went, it was in Munich one time. I think this was the time I was waiting for the results of my bar examination because I told my mother, "Mom, um, I really don't want to be in the country when the bar exam results come <laughs> out. So I would like to be uh, somewhere else." And I was in a bar in Munich, and it was completely random. And there was some football hooligans who were drinking. And, you know, they started coming up to me and talking to me. And it was like, it was just this funny thing where they said they were trying to get me to buy them drinks. And I said, I flew from halfway. I, I flew, I came from Southeast Asia. If anything, you should be buying me drinks because you can afford more. And this big guy from Norway, he's like an oil worker. And he earns a lot of money because he works in Norway. He came in and he said, where are you from? You look like you came from very far away. And I said, I'm from the Philippines. And then he just started buying me drinks. And then, and then we talked the whole night. And we, re- You know, nothing, nothing we spoke about was of substance. At one point, he asked me if, if I'd like to fuck his sister. <laughs> <laughs> right? To, just to give you an idea. Did you how. say yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a pretty portly gentleman, so I wasn't quite... <laughs> I wasn't sure what his sister might look like. Of course, I was, sing- I, I, was, I, was, I was very much in a committed relationship at the time, so I did not entertain it even for a moment, I swear. And of course, his sister wasn't there. <laughs> so we were really shooting the breeze. Uh, it was one of those things where, you know, it was such a beautiful moment. Like, it, it's so stupid, right? Uh, and then I was drunk, and I stumbled into the tram on the way home. And the Germans could tell I was shit-faced, right? And so they started, um, you know, talking to me and say, Oh, where are you from, friend? <laughs> and, I, and then I would say, like, so I was drunk enough that I was, I was having fun with it. I say, oh, oh um, why don't you guys guess where I'm from? Right, because I'm I'm weird. Like I, I I'm half Arab, I'm half Filipino. It's not a mix you see often. So they were like, uh, perhaps you are from India, <laughs> right? Or perhaps you are from uh, the south of Spain, right? Because I, I look like I could be from those places. And I said, no, no, no I'm actually Asian. And then they were like, oh, oh he's Asian. And then uh, there was a gentleman in the back. He wore glasses. He he looked like he was working late. He looked like an accountant. He said, I know what you are. You are Filipino. Because your English is too good. <laughs> right? and, then he said, and then someone else in the tram goes, Ha, is that where you get your girlfriend from? <laughs> is that why you know? And I'm just thinking to myself, Oh God, wow. I was drunk a second ago and I was enjoying it a second ago. This is so awkward now. And you don't get to have those beautiful moments unless you, you're out there and you're having a strange experience. Do you have any experiences like that? Yes, actually. When I was um, uh, in Myanmar, <laughs> I I got like I was like on this this was on my birthday for uh, for my twenty seventh birthday by the way, um I booked a flight got on a bus to go to the ancient city of Bagan 
Mm-hmm. That's where um, they're famous. They're also known for uh, uh, for being the sea of temples. Like they have thousands of temples untouched. Uh, they also have the hot bear air balloons. Anyway, I got off the bus. And it was such a funny experience because I got off the bus and then a guy on his horse, on his horse carriage, offered me a ride. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just like, I've heard of them. And they're like, oh, you know, they're like our calesas in a way, but um, a little bit more rugged. You have like, there's a bed behind it. They put a mattress. <laughs> I wonder what people are doing in those. Yeah, that's open. So it was a man uh, with his nephew. It was 4 a.m. in the morning, got off the bus with my backpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really proud about this, by the way, because I, I didn't have any check-in. It was like a really tight schedule thing. I land in Myanmar, get on a bus, an overnight bus, and I, I had no time delay. Mm-hmm. And then I got to the bus station, and it was absolute chaos, which I loved. Like... To the point, like, everyone was sitting on the floor. You're not exactly sure where the bus was. And, like, you know, there was no or there's no sense of organization. Mm-hmm. So I got there. I got my ticket. And I'm like, I don't even know where the toilet is. And I finally, the bus arrived. I don't know how people knew that was the bus. But when I got there, it was, like, this airport kind of style bus. They have, like, trolleys in the center, a TV. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, and they have drinks. Like, hello, ma'am, would you like a drink? With the go with your um, your movie, <laughs> okay, sure. Anyway, so I got off the bus and then I, a man just said like, "Hey, um, where are you going, miss?" And I said like, "I just want to see the sunrise because I'm here because I heard you're famous for the sunrise." And I was like, "Oh, I know, I know a place." I'm like, <laughs> "A <laughs> place." <laughs> I know a place. You know, that's the first thing you do. You <laughs> you're an Asian girl. You come to a country by yourself and you're like, you just trust a man to tell you that he knows a place with his horse and his nephew. So I hop on, being, you know, that was uh, the best decision I've ever had. So I hop on. He brings me to the place that he, you know, told me about. And it was like a hill in the middle of like nowhere, like no tourists. It was in a a really old, they had like a really old town around it. And then I saw the sunrise. It Like, you know, those movies where it kind of looks like Lion King, that kind of sunrise. That was that kind of sunrise. And there are the hot air balloons coming out. And you could hear the, the morning chants of like their morning prayer and then funny story was that i ended up meeting one of now who is a person who ended up becoming like one of my really good friends um there because i saw him flying his drone and then the cops came in and they're like the military cops (laughs) came in they're like hey you're not allowed to fly your drone here this is a unesco site oh we'll probably cut that out (laughs) no problem go ahead (laughs) Yeah, so I came up to him and was like, hey, did you get arrested? Because I want to fly my drone too. (laughs) 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 Did you have to pay a fine? Like, what? Was it worth it? They're like, oh, yeah, it's okay. You know, just just don't get caught, kind of thing. So we ended up flying our drone anyway. Anyway, so I, 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 this is a guy, I meet him. His name is Elisha, by the way. And I was just like, hey, I'm alone, you're alone. Let's be travel buddies. I also don't know how to drive a motorcycle. (laughs) And he's from Malaysia. And I was just like, okay, who's this random girl asking me for my number? <laughs> and he, you know, he gave me his number, and I thought it was a fake number because he didn't add the 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 um, country code. Uh-huh. And, and I was um, trying to call him on WhatsApp, and it wouldn't go through. I was like, ah, oh, this guy gave me his fake number. Uh, sorry, but before that, um, he we were in the same tiny hill with that little old town, right? Um, a, guy, a random guy approaches us and say like, hey, do you want a tour of the town? And I was like, sure. There's nothing around it. Like, you just have to h- kind of have a tour of the village. 
and we go through the village. Nobody bothers us. Everyone, it's 5 a.m. Nobody bothers us. People are just having coffee. And then um, the guy comes, tells us, like, this is the oldest lady in the village. <laughs> and I was, by the way, it was just a window and she was in her kitchen. And then she was sitting smoking a cigar. And the guy was like, this is the oldest lady in the village. She's 48. <laughs> <laughs> she was actually like 75 or 80. Okay. <laughs> and then she comes up to me and she was like telling the guy who was like trying to translate, like, hey, she's inviting you to smoke cigars with her and she wants to make you tea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hell yeah, I'll smoke cigars with the oldest lady in the village. Well, she's in her kitchen. <laughs> By the way, I have a photo of this. She's literally like just like on the floor sitting down just smoking cigars and her her, her daughter's there cooking breakfast and this and that. Yeah, so I, she makes us tea and then we just smoke cigars at 6 a.m. And then we just talk about like Myanmar, like what's there to do and this and that. And I just thought it was like a really, co- I thought it was a really cool experience. It's one of those things though, like, like just the difference in perspective is something that really wakes you up. Um, with me, one of the things that happens to me, this isn't in the context of travel, but I think it's really good for illustrating the point. A, lo- a lot of the times I'll be driving in like a very remote countryside, sometimes for business or for personal reasons. I take my car, I get in the Roro, I go to Roro, not a ro- Roro, that's that's a Baroque way, to, uh, that's the um, Konya way of saying it. Uh, but I, we go to another island, we're driving by a lot of farmland, and you always see in farmland there's these small clumps of villages where maybe there's like eight or ten houses. And I always look out my window and I say to myself, wow, can you imagine what it must be like to live there? It must be terribly boring, right? And that's a thought that I often have occur to me very often. And my mother was with me on one of those trips and I verbalized it. I told her, oh, look, just pointing at a random small collection of huts in the middle of a agricultural field and said, Oh, mother, don't you think it must be boring to live in one of those places? And without missing a beat, my mother says, you know, those people are probably happier than you are, Remy. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm just like, it's like, oh, mom, that's too much truth. It's it's 8 a.m. in the morning, please. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it, um, I will, I'll bring up a story mm-hmm. that's kind of a similar experience. But like, I remember something about like, there are people who have every, like, you know, Christmas seasons at the season where everyone's kind of happy, but there are also people who are also really sad. Mm-hmm. Because you can have everything, you can have money, but there are always people who are happier to have less. Yeah. Yeah. Ha, so kind of like a uh, similar story to what happened to me. I was in Bantayan. I think it was Bantayan. Um, I asked, we were going on like this little island hopping trip. And then I asked the guy, like, we want to eat fresh seafood, like the best seafood. Just bring us anywhere. We don't care. Like, give us the be- best seafood. And he was like, okay, I got you. And then he brings us to this little, s- like literally a small fisherman island, an island, not like a, like a village, a small fisherman island. And he s- we go down, we're like, wow, there's nobody here. It's literally just fishing boats everywhere. And then he brings us to his house. He brings us to his house, sets up a table in like this, in the middle, out, like outside his house. And his wife starts cooking us like the freshest seafood I've ever had in the Philippines. Because we were in a fisherman's village, in a fisherman's house. They set up a table for us. They even like have those um, those a tablecloth, and then you know the rice was really cooked from uh, like with firewood pa, and you know, and it was like so fresh and was so humbling. They, it was like this real sense of true Filipino hospitality mm-hmm. that this man just brought us to his house to eat because he was, he knew that was the freshest seafood. 
we paid like oh my god we only paid like 200 pesos per person for a huge fish and an octopus but we gave him more obviously but like i was like wow that's really <laughs> amazing i don't know i just thought like those are like those authentic experiences and also one more other story like that's kind of remembered from traveling was uh, one of my <laughs> random trips was in uh, Barakai. And then I, because I was kind of hostel hopping. I, I had this phase in, you know, in your 20s, you want to go through hostels. So I, I met like the most incredible and most uh, interesting people. And uh, that people turn into friends with like lifetime, you know, lifetime connection. We still keep in contact. And then because I met this one guy in Barakai, it became like this butterfly effect. Because I met this one guy in Baraka, he invited me to his graduation trip in Palawan, which, by the way, happened like five years after we met. Next thing I know, we're like sailing through the seas of Palawan for like days. We rent out an entire island. We, you know, it was just like this series of like fortunate events. Mm. And I think with travel, just like now I can say like I can, I know someone in almost every country. Mm. I have a place to stay in and I don't have to pay for hotels. Mm. <laughs> Kind of thing, but it's like it it it, it kind it it's an oog- if you have a struggle with your ego, you should travel because it humbles you. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll share I'll share one more story because we could go down this rabbit hole of just continuously. Yeah, sharing I think stuff. it should just be a separate episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but then the, no, there was this really one experience I had. I think I was seventeen years old. I went to Macau, so it's not like a very touristy location. And I wasn't there for travel. I was there for a trade show. So my family were engaged in export. And so trade shows are where you sit in a very sterile hall for five days, hoping someone will come and buy your products. And you don't go out because you're there from eight in the morning until six in the evening. So you don't really have time to go do anything. If you do, you're just catching dinner before you head back to the hotel. And so I think it was the third or the fourth day. And I was there with, um, some one with another employee of um, our business, and we went. We just started walking outside the hotel, and we saw some Filipinas <laughs> at a convenience store. And we sat down and we started talking to them. And it was it was the strangest thing because I knew they were prostitutes, uh, right? <laughs> you could tell they were they had the uh, the garb. Uh, they had been identified that way, um, and and we just started talking to them, and it was it was it was honestly one of the one of the nicest interactions I've ever had, right? Where, you know, you're, it's just you know two, it's just a group of people trying to get to know each other better, and it was it was it was punctuated by the very surreal experience of BMWs and Mercedes Benz pulling up every now and then and trying to wave the women over, right? And so these are, and they were actually foregoing um, the Johns who were passing by. They were saying, no, no, we, 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 they would just wave them away. And I realized that, oh, it was because they enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> they actually, they were there to work. Oh. They, they, were on, they were on the clock, right? But they were, we were sitting there and we were just telling them about what the Philippines is like because we just happened to be from the same portion of the Philippines. We were, we, were, we, were, we were all from Cebu or the Visayas. And so we would just tell them stories about like where it's like where, where it was where we were specifically from, and they would tell us wow, how they wound up in Macau and these kinds of things. I won't go into details, of course. And it was just the, it was just a nice, genuine human experience that I, I don't think I would have gotten if I, if I didn't at least, you know, venture out a, a little over two kilometers away from our hotel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I guess before we go again on that tangent of like travel stories, um, 
what's it like as a single 29 year old lady in Cebu? Go on. No, there. Just just explain. Just expound. Because wait, I don't know. You said 29 year old. What could it be? I don't know what your question is. Uh, oh yes, ah. of course. What what is it like to date as a 29 year old single lady in Cebu? Terrible. <laughs> what's it? Okay, go ahead. Okay, expound. So, oh my God. So I recently I've on I'm been on this journey of dating mm-hmm. not like i'm not like a serial dater i'm quite um picky mm-hmm. um i've been on i think this year i've been on one and a half dates when i say half because i it was just a drink so i and then i left so i don't know if that's a date <laughs> it's called kicking the nuts for the guy yeah so it was one and a half yeah so anyway i realized like um i, I gave this a, a bit of a thought one of the reasons that it's hard is that because of my personality type, I'm not your exactly your pliant. <laughs> I'm not exactly <laughs> the most submissive lady in the world. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you no. know. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I realize like a lot of guys come here, especially like let's say foreigners or locals, they like they, they just want like a, a a lady who can they're looking for a wife for their kids. Mm. It's not necessarily a bad thing, mm. but I am a very independent woman when it comes, like I am, I don't, how do I say, I don't need you to buy me anything because I can buy that myself. I, I don't need to drive me around because I can drive myself around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's not exactly much need. You're not a passenger princess. Oh my God, you know, I had a date last week and I was explaining like, oh, I'm finally a passenger princess for once in my life. And then he asked me, what's a passenger princess? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I want to be a passenger princess once. Okay. Once. But I still want, okay. I, I, okay, not going to lie. I, w- I would like to be drive, drove around once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, because I have so much, I wouldn't say I'm looking for a perfect man. I have limited options. So... I'm a very confident woman and I meet a lot of insecure men uh-huh. and I re- I've realized throughout the years I cannot deal with insecure men mm-hmm. because they just kind of, it's just, it won't work. The dynamic wouldn't work. And especially here in Cebu, um, I'm not exactly the most typical in terms of personality. Mm-hmm. I find humor very important, conversation flow very important. Um, but I also do my own thing mm-hmm. and I need someone who needs, who can follow along with my, like, if I want to go hiking, I need someone who wants to go hiking at 5am at to Dalaget because I've done that. <laughs> okay. So I need someone who can keep up. And then because of all of these little requirements of, I wouldn't say requirements of my person, because of my personality type, it just narrows it down and it's harder to get. And, um, it's just hard. If I can ask, though, like just to, just to clarify, because insecurity is such a broad word. I hope I don't derail your train of thought. What are some ways that men have expressed to you or communicated to you that they're insecure about their status of dating or being in a relationship with you? I've had men, like I had crushes on. I remember I had men I had crushes on in my early 20s. Um, he said they didn't want to ask me out because... Um, I look too expensive. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's not one insecurity. But it was more of like they were they they just didn't want to try to ask me out. It was funny. 
uh, in terms of insecurity, um, let's say um, my past dating history. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dated. Um, I've dated pilots. I've dated um, Calvin Klein models. I've dated. I don't know if I. Should, is this is something I should be bragging about. Uh, yeah, I've dated like a series of uh, good quality, good quality men, um, and there are people who. I'm also because I'm also very much like a social butterfly. Mm-hmm. If I talk to a man, there are people who can. There are men who get jealous if I talk to them. I show even the slightest attention. Mm. I can't deal with people who tell me how to dress because I would like to dress a certain way. I don't want people to tell me like you shouldn't talk to that person or you shouldn't dress that way. No, you just you need to trust me that I won't do anything. Just trust me. Mm-hmm. So I want an equal who I can grow with and just kind of understand like okay, I'm going through this path while I also understand you, kind of thing. I don't know how to explain it. Mm-hmm. Well, l- let's 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 oh, crystallize okay. maybe. What are what are five things or maybe four things? That are like non-negotiables that you need in the in the guy you're dating, or that a guy you want to take seriously, because dating is like a whole other ball game. Like a guy you actually consider being in a relationship with. Four things. So last week, I went on um, this crazy, amazing, long one week long date. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, for all the female listeners listening, yes, her life is better than yours. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was really quite spectacular. I was just telling him when he left because I really knew he was leaving. Mm. I said, "This is going to be a, a bumble date. That's going to be. That's going to. I mean, this is going to be a bumble date. That's going to be hard to beat. Honestly." So he took me away. Uh, we went on to like this five-week, I uh, know, one-week getaway, and then we stayed in, like, this private island resort, and then we did things in waterfalls. <laughs> mm, uh, no, maybe cut that out. We don't, we, no details. It's okay. Continue. <laughs> some uh, some G-rated know. things, please. Okay, <laughs> G-rated thing. Yeah, you know, you know. So uh, We anyway. held hands. <laughs> yeah, we held hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, so I was like, uh, for once, I was like, oh, I, I've never felt this way of being spoiled because I was so used Someone told me like I had this uh, raw like I have because I've been so independent my whole life. Um, so yeah, um, someone mentioned this to me that I am very because I am a very independent woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to provide my own masculine energy in my life. Okay. And because I provide my own masculine energy, it's hard for someone. I have to find someone who can dominate that. Mm-hmm. Someone who is very masculine. Very masculine in a sense. So I finally found that person. Like I finally found a person. Like, um, though I knew he was leaving, this was just really a a dream getaway, like a dream week. Um, I realized what qualities I want in a man. Mm-hmm. Like, I like for me communication is very important. Mm-hmm. Seeing eye to eye. Um, what one of the little uh, details that I really enjoyed was like. Uh, all we did was just read, hold hands and read our books on the beach and just were everywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought I was like, I just want a man who I can read books with. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be, okay, sorry, circle back. What are the qualities? Four qualities, right? Yeah. Communication. Uh-huh. Same. Um, interest. No, not the same interest. Same love languages. Okay. Um. Third is that I know that they are, they would like to improve themselves as well. 
so it's like self-care so they know that i have my issues he has his issues and let's build that together let's work on this together so it's this sense of partnership really and the fifth the fourth one would be yeah it's a sense of adventure sense of adventure is very important to me mm-hmm. um sense of I- adventure and independence presumably because you're terribly independent you want a guy who can live a life apart from you absolutely yeah it was it was it was my first year english teacher first semester in college he said you know i broke up with a guy because he said he couldn't live without me and i said it's hard enough living my and she said it's hard enough living my own life why should i be accountable for you too yes uh, and then she found someone who she fell in love with and that became her husband they've been together like 30 something years <laughs> she was very happy to find out later that i become that i became a lawyer because <laughs> of the english she taught me english right so yeah but i guess that's a challenge no like i think i, I that's that's something that's particularly difficult and something particularly unique in cebu there are so many terribly talented and intelligent women in cebu but the dating pool is awfully shallow it's yes it's uh it's it's very shallow it's very small you, you just say um there's plenty of fish in the sea but it's a bunch of guppies yeah mm-hmm. what are some ways for for you that have worked to maybe find quality men i guess leave the country <laughs> 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 it's that hopeless huh <laughs> i'm not kidding people my age locals are all people my age who are locals already either married have kids or they have, yeah, they basically all have married. They're either, ha- they already have kids or they're married. I haven't really met many single people who don't have kids. And not to say that kids are bad, you know. Um, wait, sorry, what was your question? No, 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 just sort of an observation, really. That, you know, the dating pool is really shallow. Well, the dating pool here is really shallow just because, like, a lot of people who come here, or when I say come here, I'd say foreigners, they're, they're here on this, like, this dream holiday getaway where they can find a woman who can do whatever they please very oh my god i was in i was in bumble today oh my god it was terrible i was picked a fight with a man uh (laughs) the audacity of men (laughs) i'm joking oh yeah so like i was reading one profile today which is like i want a woman who can um i'm looking for a wife who can make good coffee cook um make decent conversation and clean very well. I took a screenshot of it, by the way. And I was just like, is this really where our dating pool has become? It's either... I, ne- I think what I'm looking for is I need a man who's sure of himself. Mm-hmm. That's it. He's just confident with himself. He doesn't have to prove anything. He doesn't have to prove me anything. I just want to have an equal where I can just be an equal. Like, <sighs> I just want an equal, man. I'm not asking you to pay for anything. <laughs> I'm not asking. I just want... Someone I can talk to. Mm. Oh, I'm frustrated. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. well, this is well. That, I guess that sentiment is a nice segue into the last question for the podcast. This is the way I always end the podcast. What will you be doing in five years? What will your life be in five years? Hopefully, I will. Everyone would say it's like as long as I'm happy, but in five year five years from now, I would just very much like to be improved. Doesn't matter where, as long as. I can look back five years and say, like, at least I'm here. Mm. Well, okay, another goal is that I would like to reach my <laughs> 50th country five years from now. So. Where are you at now? How many countries I'm are you? I'm still 
I'm still at 30. So my goal before was 30 countries before 30. So I want to do 50 countries before 35. Okay. Okay. That's a good goal. Definitely. <laughs> That's a good goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, well, Abby, we're at the end of the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Abby, for having me.